electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Julia Borston. Carl and Deirdre are off. Today, Apple's at an all-time high with one long-term bear turning around on the stock today, kind of. He joins us in a moment. And then, are TikTok ads a better value than Facebook's? Shares soft after a downgrade this morning. We have that analyst as well. And later, a monster partnership between Google Cloud and C3 AI. You can see C3 stock is up about 4% so far today. You'll hear from both of those CEOs this hour in a CNBC exclusive interview. But we start with Apple. Uh, That's at an all-time high. Our next guest just raised his rating and price target on the company, citing growth in the U.S. and a rising market share globally. Joining us now is the analyst behind that call, Wolf's Jeff Qual, a long-term bear on the stock. And Jeff, also today we got news from Apple that this promised capability to store an ID on the phone in a way similar to Apple Pay, but with, say, a state-issued driver's license is beginning to roll out. Eight states have agreed at least to do that. Is Apple's ecosystem and the durability of that part of the reason for your call here? Um. No, I think the ecosystem is reasonably well established, John. So I, I feel like uh, adding a, another element to that doesn't really change our thesis. Um, I am hopeful that uh, adding more like wallet replacement type features will boost share or boost sales of the watch. You know, they've leaned into healthcare in, in the watch and uh, not as much wallet over time, but that, that does seem to be happening. So this, I, I would hope that this would be a positive for watch sales, yes. So yeah, I mean, that's part of what I mean is that uh, you had been negative on uh, the stock for quite a while, but it seems like that ecosystem, whether it's phone sales during the pandemic, attach rates of the watch, the use case there with health has held up pretty well. And that's part of the reason, uh, if I'm reading this right, why you're turning around on it a bit. One of the things that I think uh, has uh, proven different about this particular iPhone cycle is that the carriers are the ones that are driving 5G adoption. It's not something that I think most consumers really talk about at cocktail parties or show off 5G capabilities, but it is important for the operators to get us over to 5G to take some of the pressure off the 4G networks. Uh, One of the things that we've noticed over the course of the past couple of months is that this isn't a phenomenon that is um, restricted to AT&T, right? AT&T started to promote to their existing subscriber base last fall. Um, and in the last couple months, both Verizon and T-Mobile have added promotions to their existing subscriber base. Uh, and that's something that none of those three carriers have really been doing for about five years. 
Yeah, those promotions certainly should be beneficial, although it is unclear how much consumers are really focused on 5G right now. But, Jeff, I'm wondering if you could weigh in on the regulatory issues. You know, we've been talking about this so much this last week. You had Apple do the settlement uh, for the class action lawsuit. Then we just heard from South Korea, and they're pushing to regulate uh, how Apple manages its app store. What are those issues going to do to the potential for that part of the ecosystem going forward? Well, I do want to return to this point about consumers and 5G, because I I do think you are right that it is not something that consumers are particularly interested in. But what is different is that the operators are. And so uh, I would expect all three of the national operators to be reasonably aggressive with their iPhone 13 promotions or, or 12S, whichever Apple calls it. Uh, once we get into the holiday selling season. Um, as far as regulatory goes, oh, it's difficult to predict from from quarter to quarter how, how those things fluctuate. But I do think that the trend is a little bit away from Apple charging 30% for App Store, uh, on App Store revenues. Uh, and that is going to have a modest impact on their App Store sales, but um, you know, only slowly as different regions make uh, irregular progress towards that that fee. Yes, certainly every region is approaching this in its own way, but there is the pending legislation here and this sort of broader sense of antitrust scrutiny, the Epic lawsuit as well. What is the risk from all of those factors? Is it a risk of distraction? Uh, And is there ultimately going to be a meaningful risk to the revenue from the App Store? Um, I think it is something that we have to keep our eyes on for sure. Uh, I don't think it is necessarily a fiscal 22 issue for Apple, but it may well be for fiscal 23. Um, One of the things that Apple is doing is they are starting to allow other uh, payment systems on the, uh, on the app store. But of course you kind of have to opt into them. It's it's not something that is going to be as easy. So even if that premise goes much broader um, well, consumer consumer uh, behavior must change as well. All right. Jeff, thank you. Thank you. And the NASDAQ hitting an all-time high to kick off the first trading day of the month. The major averages all ending higher to wrap up August, with S&P notching its seventh straight positive month. And the NASDAQ and the NASDAQ 100 locking in three-month win streaks. Joining us now is Bespoke Investment Group co-founder Paul Hickey. Paul, when you look at these numbers and these trends, the question is, are we due for a correction? Well, yeah, I mean, really, what we're looking at the the tech sector overall is that we've really seen, you you know, you can't stress enough how much the sector has matured over the last uh, several years. Uh, Prior to 2013, the sector never experienced a pullback uh, you always saw a pullback of at least 10% in a given year. Since 2013, we're on pace now for the fourth year where, the, where it hasn't pulled back more than 10%. So tech has matured. Uh, the maximum draw, median drawdown is a lot smaller now in the last 10 years than it was in the prior 20. And what you look at right now is the, the current headlines for the technology sector are phenomenal. You have you know, a dovish Fed. You have uh, economic growth, but slowing. Look at the economic data points that we've seen since um, in the last, since the start of August, all five regional Fed 
reports show deceleration for weaker than expected. Consumer confidence is weakening. Um, and then you also saw the, the missing ADP private payrolls. They're all positive, but they're all showing weaker signs. So that is an environment where growth becomes more scarce, which is positive for tech. And when you see the COVID numbers going, continuing to rise, that should uh, be another reason why investors gravitate towards more of these tech stocks, which have consistent growth. Uh, but the key here is that, to your point, Julia, what you just mentioned, can it, you know, are we due for a correction? What's really interesting is that while the tech sector is hitting record highs day after day, it seems, today is the one-year anniversary where the sector peaked relative to, relative to the S&P 500. And uh, it hasn't taken out that high from September 1st, 2020 uh, yet. So, um, you know, we've rallied off the lows on a relative basis since May 12th, uh, but we still have yet to take out those highs. Now, Paul, when you look ahead towards the rest of the year and the fact that the whole sector has been performing well, are there certain elements, certain parts of the sector that are better positioned to break out between now and 2022? Yeah, so first for the overall tech sector as a whole, just like the market, it's one of those things historically where strength tends to beget strength. So you have years where the where the tech sector was up 20% or more through the end of August. The average September was usually a coin flip, whether it was positive or negative. But for the rest of the year, the average, the median gain was 10% for the tech sector going forward. So it tends to be positive going forward. Unlike a lot of other sectors where we've seen dispersion, most techs, most groups within the technology sector are right at or near 52-week highs. Uh, the one exception is IT services, uh, where that group has been lagging recently. And IT services uh, is primarily 40% of the sector is Visa and MasterCard. And a number of the deals that we've seen over the course of the last month with uh, these, you know, buy now, pay later, and, you know, uh, Square buying uh, Afterpay and some other deals, even Amazon with the firm, are sort of you know getting investors to wonder if the you know very strong moat that these two stocks, Visa and Mastercard, have had is becoming is going to be a little weaker moving forward. Yeah, let me key off of what you just said, Paul, in a way, and ask the flip side of that correction question which is uh, we're seeing a number of companies starting to make kind of aggressive moves to try to secure growth and uh, pursue a strategy post-pandemic. Today we see this partnership between Google Cloud and C3AI. C3AI is up almost 5% at the moment ahead of earnings on that news. Is there a potential acceleration where these multiples in some cases become justified because of the adoption of AI and the partnerships between uh, these companies with good technology and these companies with great distribution? Yeah, so I mean, if if a company is willing to pay, um, you know, these multiples of sales for some of these other companies, that that's one thing. I, I mean, I C three AI. I don't know what its multiple of sales is, but I'm pretty sure it's extremely high at this point. But to your what what's going on? Just getting back to this payments sector that, that I was just talking about, all these companies are looking for growth in different ways. Uh, you you hear uh, Robinhood wants to be the next uh, payments platform. So where I was just talking about Square and PayPal eating into the moat of um, Visa and Mastercard. You have these other companies coming for to become you know try and compete with Square and uh, PayPal. So 
there's a lot of competition here. It sort of reminds us about 10 years ago when Apple, Google, and Amazon were all, in, you know, you know, they were all doing great. But in order to keep that growth going, they were all starting to eat into each other's turf. Um, and it caused some short-term disruptions for the stocks because uh, investors were fearing the increased competition and, and spending would would impact growth going forward. So I, I think that's something to be concerned about uh, with some of these payment stocks as so many different uh, areas and so many different players are starting to become, are wanting to become the dominant player there. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul, on this day when NASDAQ is at an all-time high. Thank you. Have a good one. Yeah, nobody gunning for second here. Well, it is day when, day one for China's new data and cybersecurity laws. Eunice Yoon has the latest for us from Beijing. Eunice. Thanks, John. Well, the new data security law from, um, from out of uh, China dictates that companies, both foreign and local, um, should store process, transfer, and manage their data according to this law. Now, the law requires all companies classify data as important or core, and core is mainly related to national security. Uh, companies that want to transfer data overseas must get explicit permission from Beijing, and violators face hefty fines or even criminal charges. Now, this law is broad, and so it's not very clear right now exactly how it's going to be implemented. Uh, what is clear, though, is that, is that it's going to limit the fundraising options uh, via overseas IPOs for many Chinese companies, especially those that are data rich. It's also one of three frameworks meant to tighten the reins on China's big tech. Now, the tech sector is also having a bit of a watershed moment, and that's because Didi and JD have both apparently announced or apparently set up, I should say, unions for their workers. This is coming from uh, various reports as well as from uh, some of the union members themselves. A social media reaction, though, has been a bit skeptical that this is all going to work because unions here are generally controlled by company management as well as by the government. And in fact, just a couple of months ago, there was one worker who tried to organize uh, thousands of people in the food delivery service in order to try to uh, fight for their rights. He has been arrested. And uh, so I think that really shows that even though we're might be seeing a, a bit of a movement towards union unionized workers, that at the end of the day, uh, Beijing is the one that wants to be the one organizing. Guys? Huh. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, unions, not the same everywhere. Important to note. Eunice Yoon, thank you. Meanwhile, C3AI, as we mentioned, getting a boost, uh, boost from the new Google Cloud partnership. See, that stock is up about 4.5%. You can hear from CEO Tom Siebel, as well as the CEO of Google Cloud, Thomas Curian, C3AI. Uh, the stock has suffered this year down 70% since that big post-IPO pop. Uh, Alphabet, parent of Google, on the other hand, has been on a historic run. Eight straight months of gains. That stock hitting new all-time highs, nearing a $2 trillion market cap up there with Apple and Microsoft. Tech Check, meanwhile, just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number 
and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. back. The global cloud computing market digesting a major partnership announced this morning between Google Cloud and enterprise artificial intelligence software company C3AI. The companies together want to target industries with AI offerings, and this will see C3AI's enterprise applications now living on Google Cloud as well as AWS and Azure. C3AI stock is up Let's see, more than 5.5% at the moment today on the news. Remember, this stock priced above the range in its IPO last year, skyrocketed on its first day of trade, but it's down 70% since February. I caught up with Google Cloud CEO Thomas Curian and C3AI CEO Tom Siebel exclusively yesterday ahead of this announcement. Curian tells me teaming up with C3 was especially attractive because of the platform's sophisticated inventory risk modeling and what it can do for customers. Take a listen. A lot of organizations in manufacturing and supply chain use our platform to collect data about their broader supply chain. But they want algorithms to understand inventory risk because if a part is in short supply, you can deliver your overall product offering. And Tom's C3AI platform has some very sophisticated inventory risk modeling and visibility algorithms. So by combining our solutions together, for example, we can offer a solution to customers in that area. Akari has been talking to me for a while now about building up Google Cloud's enterprise Salesforce, how important that is. And now Siebel says he hopes this integration with Google Cloud is going to be so seamless that users won't be able to differentiate where one company ends and the other begins, and he's going to get a boost as well from Google Cloud's go-to-market capability. This is a major partnership. Uh, Thomas and I are serving you know, personally as the executive sponsors of this partnership to make sure that it succeeds, and uh, we are committed to uh, kind of dramatically expand the Elastic Cloud Computing and Enterprise AI market and assure that each and every one of our customers are just elated with our products and services. Remember, these two guys are enterprise software veterans pre-cloud. Both of them worked at Oracle. Siebel left, founded Siebel Systems. Oracle bought it. Uh, Currian now uh, running cloud at Google, of course. You can check out this entire conversation on TechCheck's LinkedIn page and in our show Twitter stream as well. Julia. Great stuff, John. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Holmes is back in court. The infamous founder of Theranos is now charged with fraud. Jury selection has begun and day two kicks off in less than an hour. CNBC's Yasmin Karam is outside the courthouse in San Jose. Yasmin, what is the takeaway from inside the courtroom? 
Hey, Julia, we are actually waiting for Elizabeth Holmes to arrive at any moment for day two of jury selection. We were in there for about seven hours yesterday. It was a pretty tense, long day. There were 14 jurors total dismissed out of the pool of almost 40 yesterday. And it really just came down to who has heard of Elizabeth Holmes and who has heard of Theranos and to what extent. That was the first question the judge asked this pool of jurors yesterday. And the answer was a resounding yes. A lot of them have read John Kerry Rue's book, Bad Blood. They have watched the documentaries. They have seen the media reports. They have heard the TED talks and the podcasts. And just a couple examples, one guy said, Sure, I can be uh, unbiased, but I do remember the defendant's penchant for turtlenecks. Another guy said that he opens up his laptop and all he sees is Theranos, Theranos, Theranos. And a woman later in the day said that she had read the book Bad Blood and she put it down feeling a sense of disappointment because she said that she was actually rooting for Elizabeth Holmes and rooting for Theranos because she says there's not enough female CEOs out here in the healthcare tech world and she wanted to see them do well and she was disappointed after reading the book. I also have to tell you Elizabeth Holmes was inside the courtroom. Again, it was a tense long day. I was keeping my eye on her and every time a new juror walked into the room, uh, she turned around in her seat and attempted to make eye contact with them. So fascinating, Yasmin. Uh, I, I'm curious here if you think about you know, how challenging it is to find jurors who are unbiased. Besides that, what types of jurors do you think they're going to be looking for? Young, old, female, male? Right, right. So I've been talking to some legal experts and jury consultants who say that for the defense team, the type of jurors they're going to look for are the sympathetic kind. The type that will, you know, say, sure, Elizabeth Holmes might have broken some laws, but she didn't intend to. And that's really what this case boils down to is intent. If the, you know, the government can't prove that she intended to do this, then it's not a crime. And, you know, that's really up to the government to prove. Uh, Yasmin, so uh, interesting to get your on-the-ground perspective, that educated workforce and jewelry pool out there in San Jose, Silicon Valley, going to make it tough uh, on this process. Thank you. Meanwhile, keep an eye on shares of CrowdStrike, beating on the top and bottom lines, but the shares are under pressure today. You can see them down about 2.5%. One name in the green, though, Zoom, trying to regain some life today as Kathy Wood, yes, buys the dip. Those details later this hour. Tech Check, be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Tech Tech. I'm Julia Borston with John Fort. Former DOJ antitrust chief Macon Delrahim joins us in just a moment. But first, let's get a news update with Rahel Solomon. Rahel? Hi, Julia. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. A surprise acceleration in U.S. manufacturing last month. The ISM's manufacturing index 
rising to 59.9. That's despite ongoing supply chain problems. The private sector added far fewer jobs than expected in August. ADP says that companies added only 374,000 people to their payrolls. Compare that to the 600,000 that were expected. Shares of Campbell Soup giving back more than half of this morning's gains. The stock up now less than 2% after surging on strong Q2 profits, although full-year earnings guidance was below forecast. And I hate to say it, but toilet paper sales are jumping again. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Procter & Gamble, the maker of Charmin, is running factories around the clock to try to keep up with demand, also limiting shipments to some retailers. Inventories of paper products remain at high levels. Julia feels a bit like deja vu. Here we are again. I'll send it back to you. Deja vu all over again, Rahel. <laughs> Thanks so much. And big tech's problems are getting bigger. Yesterday, South Korean parliament approving a bill that will ban Google and Apple's app stores from requiring developers to only use their payment systems. This is at the heart of what Epic Games and other app developers here in the U.S. are fighting for. But Apple and Google say that outside purchase systems make it easier for fraud and put user privacy at risk. For more on the global regulatory crackdown on big tech, let's bring in Macon Delrahim, the former assistant attorney general for the DOJ's antitrust division. Macon, thank you for joining us today. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this development out of South Korea and whether you think this is going to kick off a wave of regulatory crackdowns on these app stores. Well, good morning, Julia. Thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, I, I, you know, I think this is interesting in the sense that every jurisdiction is trying to grapple with this issue, um, and you know, with this, with the issue being um, the market power of the uh, of some of these online marketplaces. And you've had legislation introduced here in the United States. Korea just seems to be the first to really act on this um, and treating the App Store and the Google Play Store as almost like a common carrier and saying that you cannot discriminate. You should allow for others payment systems. And, uh, you know, you have uh, Russia, you have Australia, Canada. Uh, every, everybody is looking, trying to grapple with what the what the actual solution is. And here we have a legislative solution rather than some kind of a negotiated solution by the parties. Well, I'm curious for you uh, to put your, your regulator, regulator hat back on and look broadly at this issue of big tech. What do you see as the risk to consumers being right now? And what do you think the appropriate remedies would be? The risk to consumers right now is that you, you basically have uh, two gatekeepers, and that's Google and Apple through their app store. Now, uh, you know, it, it may or may not be a violation of the antitrust laws. Uh, they have built it, uh, but it doesn't mean that it is not a broader public policy concern, both from a, co a competition standpoint, uh, allowing consumers to benefit from different app developers, different content providers being on those two platforms. And that is the challenge that everybody has been uh, trying to address. Now, there is no uniform standard globally for antitrust, you know, for even the violation, let alone what the remedy should be. So whether or not these will be uh, addressed through antitrust laws and law enforcement or prescribed through regulation like the European Union is doing or cracked down through legislation. And I think all... Three of those will be on the menu 
Um, and I think the companies will probably face, uh, you know, solutions in different parts of the world, depending on the form of government uh, to address the market power. Which sounds like a, a nightmare. Uh, Making it's interesting. You mentioned common carrier, and it strikes me that this is maybe an effort to turn app stores into utilities, like almost like electric utilities, or complete with rate cases and all kinds of other, uh, you know, government interventions into how they can do business. But is there danger there, especially given that very, very few people love their electric utility or even, dare I say it, their cable company, but people do love Apple and Google and Amazon. And if you mess with them in governments around the world, my, in the wrong way, might you kill the goose that lays the golden egg? Well, there's no question that all three of these companies have brought innovations and conveniences uh, to consumers. I mean, we just saw through the, the pandemic, we have gone through uh, how Amazon delivers for most consumers many of the goods, including your last segment talking about toilet papers coming home. Uh, but it is, an, it is an absolute nightmare when government steps in to prescribe business rules. And we have done that in the United States when uh, the old Ma Bell was broken down and the local phone systems became common carriers and you had you know, different telecommunications acts until you had some deregulation in 1996. But that's the direction it seems like it is going. I thought it was smart of Apple to have settled uh, the class action case uh, just <laughs> yeah. a few days ago. But, but was that really much of a settlement? It didn't seem to me like Apple gave up that much at all, except saying, OK, we promise not to, to skew things more in our favor. And, yeah, you can send emails to your customers, letting them know of other ways to pay. I don't know how many customers are going to do that, which brings me to, I guess, the second question, which is that this isn't just about pricing. There are so many developers who complain about how they're even able to update their app, engage with consumers within these app stores. And I'm not sure that legislation is going to be able to address that very well. Uh, legislation, most it can do is it'll prescribe new rules uh, of the road for these businesses. But with Apple, I think that what they did give up was much more than they have in the past. So that was an important step. And I think it also sends a signal that, you know, I think the leadership at Apple, they're adults. They're realizing that even though you could win a legal fight, the public relations fight, especially with consumers, especially with a consumer facing brand, is also important. And think about are there regulatory risks, not only in the United States, but abroad, so I think they settled. They didn't have, you know, that was a private negotiation between the representatives of that class action of the app developers and the company. And they were able to come to a solution. Was it the perfect solution for all parties and developers? No. But that is, I think, a first step and a recognition uh, by them. And I thought it was very smart for them to do that. Now, is it a little too late? Does that forestall government action? We'll have to see. But again, mm -hmm. there is no international rules. You know, we have all sorts of rules that govern, mm -hmm. you know, the, the transfer of money, yeah. uh, the protection of intellectual property. But for antitrust, we really don't. And uh, every jurisdiction, 140 yeah. of them now, set their own rules. Well, I, I want to uh, ask you to pivot away from the App Store question for a moment and weigh in on this question of whether these tech giants should be broken up, if it's even possible to break them up. This is what the FTC has been pushing for with Facebook in particular. What would you do if you were Lena Khan? Well, there, there's a lot of what you could do. Uh, uh, 
and and under the laws and what you'd want to do. There's a huge delta there. Uh, I had an old friend, Jack Valenti, who once told me, "Making you can tell a man to go to hell. Getting him there is a whole different story." And that's, I think, an apt a proverb right now for this. You might want to break them up, but do the current U.S. antitrust laws allow for that? Do you have to prove? not only the violation of the law, but then there's also some rules, you know, Microsoft case about 20 years ago in the Court of Appeals that, that prescribed what the remedy could be. When, when is a breakup appropriate? A judge can, you know, can order a breakup. Will that uphold all the way through the Supreme Court? So that's a long road. The, a, a regulator, especially in the law enforcement uh, community, like the antitrust division or the FTC, can't just come in and say, we're just going to break you up. You have to go through a litigated process. Legislation is different. Congress could come and step in and say, you can't do this or you could do this. And right now there seems to be some, some bipartisan appetite to do something in this antitrust space. So it sounds like you think breakups are less likely or certainly a longer road to get there, but legislative action changing the way these companies operate is far more likely with all of that in mind, with what we've seen from the FTC so far, from these reviews of Amazon buying MGM, what do you anticipate from uh, from the Biden administration in terms of oversight of M&A? And how do you think that's going to impact what some of these tech giants do in the next couple of years? So I think the procedurally, the, the new administration and uh, at the Federal Trade Commission the head of the antitrust division has just been nominated, so has not been confirmed and installed yet. But at the Federal Trade Commission, they've recently changed their internal rules about you know when you could ask for a detailed, uh, you know, a second stage investigation into some of these M and A. I think most merging parties would be wise to think ahead of time and factor in the process delays that'll go, that'll take place. And then with respect to the big tech, you know, if, if I don't know if, if Apple tried to buy Ford Motor Company or even a Ford dealership for that matter. Um, what is the FTC going to do? Uh, are, is, are the critics going to come out and say none of these tech companies can do so? We'll see what happens with the MGM transaction and Amazon. Um, you know, will the FTC allow that to go forward? You know, within the uh, content production business, MGM doesn't account for a huge market share, but the issue of Amazon having access to the data uh, is, is something that is going to be interesting to watch if they challenge that transaction. Um, and then we'll see. We'll see if it, if it holds up in the appellate process. But I think that if you're a, you know, one of the four big tech companies uh, having a transaction, even one where it shouldn't be a problem under current economic thinking, uh, there's going to be some pr- procedural delays by both agencies taking a very close look. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insight on this very complicated landscape, Macon Delrahim. Of course. Thanks for both of you for having me. Great indeed to have him. And now there's Elizabeth Holmes. You can see uh, entering the courthouse and we'll have more Tech Check after the break.
A downgrade for Facebook this morning, Rosenblatt taking it to neutral, largely on valuation concerns, saying it's been a good ride, but the company may have hit its peak. Another report out today from Kantar Research shows another reason to be bearish on Facebook, namely competition. For the second year in a row, TikTok is the number one platform in terms of consumer receptivity to ads, followed by Amazon, then Instagram, and then Google. The report also notes that TikTok's ad growth has nearly doubled from 19 to 37 percent. It has fast become a major competitor to the social media giants, along with Amazon. Joining us now is the analyst who downgraded Facebook today, Mark Satovich of Rosenblatt Securities. Mark, thanks for joining us. Lay out your thesis here. How much of this downgrade is about competition and how much of it is about other things like the limitations on ad targeting thanks to Apple? Yeah, sure. I I think, uh, first off, it's really about their core business, which has been DR. Uh, You know, the majority of Facebook revenue has been driven by DR and they've had a massive competitive advantage you know, both uh, themselves and Google have had, uh, you know, essentially uh, an SDK in every app, uh, you know, known to man. And they've been able to leverage that uh, with, uh, you know, very strong ROAS. Uh, and I think what happened here recently with Apple IDFA and with iOS uh, 14.5 is it really put a kink in that armor. And we've seen, uh, you know, essentially ROAS come down pretty considerably. And I think the pricing that Facebook is trying to sort of press um, at that lower ROAS is is having a difficult uptake. So it first starts with the you know core uh, business, uh, which is DR. Uh, the, the other piece of their business, which is more focused uh, competitively with, as you mentioned, the TikToks, uh, the Snapchats, uh, YouTube uh, shorts, uh, uh, short videos, uh, that is a little more uh, at par, if you will, uh, with uh, those platforms, and particularly, particularly with the higher prices that Facebook is is pressing here today. So, competitively, uh, we're seeing uh, you know those names that you mentioned come more into focus today, and advertisers have a little bit more leverage, uh, I think, on Facebook than they've had uh, you know on the advertisers in the past uh, with you know with those options. Now, Mark, we just spent our last segment talking about antitrust risk to the tech giants. How much does the regulatory scrutiny of Facebook come into play in your downgrade? Uh, very little. I think we've, you know, we've we've kind of gone through the the regulatory side of the equation multiple uh, different ways, and you know, if you break up uh, this company and separate Instagram and Facebook, I think you you still have the two largest you know, ad platforms, uh, if you will, out there. I think what's a bit more uh, of a nuance to that that argument now is sort of how, uh, you know, DR uh, will play out over the, you know, ensuing months uh, with uh, the lower ROAS uh, that they're offering. And, uh, you know, personally, uh, I think uh, Facebook has, uh, you know, a bit of a transition to, uh, you know, work through here on uh uh, with this IDFA uh, uh, initiative. Yes, well, this is a space we will be watching. Facebook shares up about 1% today. Mark, thanks for joining us. You bet. Take care. And meantime, in crypto, Ether hitting its highest level since May. And Tech Check, we'll be back in a moment. 
Uber and Lyft prices are at all-time highs, wait times are longer than normal, and riders are starting to take notice. But what's really behind the rising costs? CNBC spoke to drivers and experts about the recent driver shortage and how that's affecting the companies as they attempt to reach and sustain profitability. Here's a look. For those who are still making a living, or at least trying to, from ride-sharing platforms, the companies are not offering enough. Sixty cents a mile driving around—it's uh, not an adequate rate. You know, at a dollar to a dollar fifty per mile, I would say you know people would be content. There are some transparency issues as well in terms of how much drivers are actually earning and in which markets and where there is that imbalance. That full piece fronted by digital video producer Dane Evans and you see Dee Bosa in there too. It can be found online on our show page, cnbc.com slash techcheck. Julia. And Don Cloud valuations may have taken to the skies in recent months. A breakdowns of the winners and losers. That's next. Plus, keep an eye on names like Asana, Okta, C3AI, and more as a slew of tech names report numbers after the bell today. Catch the latest coverage here on Tech Tech. We're back in two. Welcome back. Today's Google Cloud and C3 AI partnership, the latest effort by megascale cloud companies to keep their foot on the gas coming out of the pandemic. Enterprise software veteran, former VMware COO and SAP president Sanjay Poonin joins us now. Sanjay, I can't help but think about Microsoft nuance, right, and the AI and industry focus there uh, looking at what Google Cloud and C3 are trying to do here. Do you think this is going to help them accelerate, maybe try to catch up with AWS? Yeah, I think this is classically sort of out of the playbook of SAP. Um, It's very clear in anything, um, software infrastructure, but also in the cloud, that as you move up stack into application and industry solutions, uh, that you get more value. It's like selling to the CEO versus selling to the CIO or CTO. So I think this is good for both companies. Google is at number three, but, you know, uh, bet behind Thomas and Rob Enslin at your own peril. They're a good team. Um, this is for C3. They had announced three years ago a partnership with AWS, last year with Azure, now with Google. So I see this as being multi-cloud and, you know, data is the new oil of the economy and AI is the engine. So this is uh, good for both companies. We'll have to see how it plays out. And you know Thomas Curry. I mean, you know, you know all these guys, but you guys were at those, those mortal enemy companies, SAP and Oracle, uh, a, a while back. Is this similar to what happened 20 years ago when we saw Oracle buy PeopleSoft and then a bunch of other companies trying to go at very specific types of solutions to grow its enterprise footprint? Is, is it a similar playbook? Yeah, I was very fortunate to work on all the multi-cloud partnerships with VMware, so I got to watch the inside of AWS, Azure, and Google, and Thomas and I are very good friends, even though we competed SAP and Oracle, it was a little bit like LeBron and Kobe. But I respect a lot of what they're doing. Listen, the cloud market's a $100 billion market run rate in the last quarter after AWS, Azure, and Google reported growing 40%. This is incredible. About $1 trillion of spend, about 20, 25% has moved to the cloud and the rest will move. Not all of it, but at least 50%. So I have not seen a growth phenomenon of this kind. And that's part of the reasons the valuations are not just these three companies, Hmm. but many others in the cloud is stupendous. But what about 
Amazon and AWS specifically. We got Andy Jassy, now CEO of Amazon overall, no longer holding the reins directly of AWS. Does that open up opportunities for competitors, perhaps um, with with the original boss not in that seat anymore? I think, listen, all three of these companies can do well. I don't think it's a winner take all. Um, you know, clearly Amazon's got a head start. They were way ahead of everybody. I think Jeff Bezos talked about it, like a five-year head start. Uh, and they're about a 55 billion run rate company. So no one's going to catch them at number one anytime soon. But Azure is uh, creeping up there. They're, you know, about 30 billion in uh, run rate. And then Google's, you know, distant third. But they've come a long way. They were the fastest growing player. So when you have 54% growth rate for Google in the last quarter, 51% for Azure and 37% for AWS, um, respectively, number three, two, and one, I think the growth rate of all of these is going to see, and I saw when I was talking to customers, a significant move of workloads to any one of these three clouds. And many of them are now becoming specialized in their areas. AWS was good with developers. Azure for kind of use cases, the enterprise like Office 365 and Google for AI. All right, Sanjay, great insight. Appreciate you joining us on Tech Check, Sanjay Pune. Thank you, John. And one more thing, Kathy Wood's on another buying spree, and this time she's getting some discounts. In new disclosures out last night, Wood doubled down on her belief in Zoom, buying $56 million worth of the stock after yesterday's dip of more than 16% following week results. And another embattled name also saw some buying, Robinhood, with Wood adding 260,000 shares to the ARK Fintech ETF despite the stock diving last week following PayPal's potential entrance into the space and new comments on payment for order flow from SEC Chair Gary Gensler. John really looks like she's looking for some deals, but Robinhood does face a number of challenges now. Indeed, and we got the NASDAQ and S&P at least slightly in the green. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.